Hello and welcome to episode number two of the Moneyball Benefits Podcast. We're going to be playing Moneyball with health plan funding today. And we're excited to have our returning champion back by popular demand. We have Bob Simeone joining us again today. Bob is our uh, senior managing principal for our greater New York office. My name is Scott Wham. I'm the director of compliance and innovation out of the Philadelphia office. And today we're going to be spending time talking about health plan funding and how we can play money ball, uh, being as efficiently as possible in the way that we pay for health insurance and health care for our employees and their families. So generally speaking, when we talk about health plan funding, we tend to organize concepts into two general buckets, uh, health plans that are fully insured and health plans that are self-insured. So starting at the beginning, Bob, do you mind taking a minute or two and defining for the listeners the difference between a fully insured health plan and a self-insured health plan? Absolutely. And Scott, thanks for having me back. We'll have some fun today. So yeah, in that funding variable. There's really two, as you said, there's two ways to look at this. And if we look at two bookends, you have fully insured on one spectrum. Think of it like car insurance. You're paying a premium. The insurance company handles all the risk and all the reward. And we'll talk about that in a few moments too. On the other extreme end of this, we talk about self-insured or self-funding, where at its purest sense, yeah, you're paying your own claims. It's self-pay. But nobody goes in naked to this. They are renting networks. They are purchasing stop loss. They are working with a TPA. We'll explain what that means later on. But just to to compare and contrast, fully insured, the insurance company that you're hiring, that you're paying a premium for, handles that risk as opposed to, you know what, I'm a good candidate to self-insure this, but I'm going to have some help along the way. And we'll talk a lot more about that. Sure. So starting with fully insured, it's usually a safe bet that most American healthcare consumers are most familiar with paying a premium, shifting risk to an insurance carrier. Uh, they show up to the doctor, they have co-pays, they have out-pocket expenditures. The employer sponsoring the plan gets a monthly bill that they pay. That risk gets shifted to the fully insured right. health insurance carrier. What are the advantages of being fully insured? And then also, what are some of the disadvantages of being fully insured, especially for those employers that want to play Moneyball? So, Scott, I think a a misconception is, especially for size, I think all too often employers think, I'm too small to be self-funded. And we'll talk a lot about that. So because of that, there are so many organizations in this country that are fully insured. It's certainly cost certainty. So you're paying a premium to the insurance company, depending upon the state and the size of your organization, the rate is either filed with the state, maybe it is a blend with your claims experience or your demographics, but there's cost certainty. So some of the pros of fully insured, I think of it as set it and forget it. You transfer that risk. You transfer that risk of your claims, whether it's a good year or a bad year, it goes to the insurance company. And year to year, you're locked in, you're cost certain. So if I'm a CFO and I'm budgeting for this, the only variable that I'm concerned about are the variable of enrollments during the year. How many singles, how many families, ads, terms along the way. But really in the pro column for fully insured, it's easy. You set it and forget it. And all that risk 
gets transferred to the insurance company. On the flip around, on some of the con side, well, think about it. There's no free lunch. So if you think about it, if you're paying someone a premium, the insurance company, as a rule of thumb, insurance companies, they don't lose. They're not going to lose. <laughs> they have underwriters and actuaries who work really hard to be able to predict some of the risk, depending upon the claims experience, depending upon the demographic. And listen, with technology as it is these days, there are pharmacy indicators where they can actually look at large claims, even if you as the employer, or maybe you're the HR uh, professional, and you say, yeah, I don't know what the claims are. I don't get any experience. I don't get any reports. How can the insurance companies tell you have some large claims? Well, there are some pharmacy markers and scores that are out there that they can actually access. So they don't lose, and you're paying that premium to transfer that risk over to the insurance company. So if you think about it as some of the downsides, you're paying a higher premium tax because the entire amount is premium. So you've got higher liabilities on that. And over time, the cost usually is more because the insurance companies aren't going to lose, certainly not over time. So in any 10-year period, you can look at this and you in a fully insured plan certainly in a 10-year period, will overpay when you factor in the risk, the profit, the premium taxes compared to a self-funded plan. So you're really going in, so you know, just one more last con on this, you're going in with blinders on. You're getting very limited data. And in particular, we'll talk about pharmacy as a couple examples today. You often have blinders on in a fully insured plan and you really don't have the ability to take control of your own destiny. Bob, to give a sense um, to the listeners as to where a fully insured employer might start receiving meaningful data that that they could take some action on. Yeah. Aside from renewal increase and and, and sure. monthly premium costs, where do you start to see that demarcation when you work with a fully insured employer, when they start actually receiving some data from the carrier sure. that's useful? Sure. This is very specific to state, to state. And I will, for now, right now, let's eliminate any geographic boundaries on this. As far as sample sizes of populations go, generally speaking, up to around 100 employees, give or take, maybe even 75 in some markets, you'll be able to start to have enough data. And before people on this call, and especially in New York, start screaming at me, I'll, I'll quickly come back and put some caveats in there. But generally speaking, the sample size, the risk population is large enough at around 75 to 100 employees where you'll be able to get data that's meaningful. And for self-funded groups that are of that size and even some smaller, you can get meaningful data. Now, it's important to not extrapolate that and say, I've got 60 employees in the plan and I have the same credibility of a 6,000 person company and that's okay. But you can start to get meaningful data right around hundred employees and at least get a look as to, huh, am I like other employers? Am I different? What's my profile look like? So also depending upon the state, there are states like New York in particular where under 100 employees in New York you cannot self-fund a plan. So, and I'll, I'll throw this comment in there too. Make sure that you are asking 
And this might sound so silly. Like, isn't it set in stone? Well, to an extent, but it doesn't hurt to ask your broker or the insurance carrier. I have 125 employees. What can I get? And every insurance company will give you their textbook answer. But often at times, there might even be some ad hoc reports that you won't be getting every month for a much larger organization. But if you're fully insured today, you should be able to start getting some meaningful data over 100 employees. Once you hit 150, 200, certainly 250, you should be getting monthly data on your plan, which will pale in comparison compared to a self-funded plan. But you should be able to start getting some, some meaningful data as you go larger up the spectrum. So I, I told you in the pre-call that this was going to be putting a, a a beach ball on a on a tee and just allowing <laughs> you to to the tee off on 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 fully insured insights. But um, if I'm going to sum it up, it's shifting risk for a fixed cost. You, you pay a fixed cost, you shift the risk to the insurance carrier. With that comes some efficiencies in administering the plan. Uh, you know the carrier is going to take on a lot of that. Uh, the responsibility for paying claims and the responsibility for building the network and the responsibility right. for everything that comes along on that front. The seat that I sit in as a compliance specialist, there are some efficiencies that are picked up being fully insured where the carrier is assuming compliance requirements that may have to be assumed by a plan sponsor if they're self-funded. We'll talk right. more about that in, in a second here. Heavily state regulated, fully insured plans are going to be are going to vary by state how market segments are defined, and also what coverages need to be included in plans and fully insured markets is going to be governed by the state. That differs from self-funded health plans. And we'll, again, we'll talk more about that. But if big picture, those are the major differences. Those are the major characteristics of a fully insured plan. Data is, access to data is going to depend on state and market segment. But if an employer is looking at it from 30,000 feet up, I'm paying a fixed cost. I'm gaining some efficiencies on administration and shifting that risk. So then let's pivot to let's pivot to being self-insured. What does a self-insured health plan look like? What's the potential upside and what's the potential downside to being self-insured? So we'll obviously hit the financial part in a moment, but for me, the biggest thing with a self-funded plan is flexibility. There's so much more flexibility and the vehicle in which we use to fund it. And we'll talk a lot today about vehicle. We'll talk about stop loss. We'll talk about all that wonderful stuff. But for me, the most exciting part about a self-funded, self-insured plan is that you have flexibility. You can design your plan to your population. Yeah, there's responsibility along the way and some compliance along the way. And yeah, you're going to avoid premium taxes but you control your own destiny. The data you get is meaningful data because you can actually do something with it. There's nothing more frustrating to me uh, throughout my career when I have actionable data at my fingertips and then are told by the insurance company, yeah, we can't do that. I got this great solution. I've been thinking about this and strategizing with our team. And here's how we're going to solve this problem. And the fully insured insurance carrier comes back and says, yeah, it sounds really logical and sound, but we can't do that. We're not filed that way. It's not the right size, not in our portfolio. We can't do it. So for me, the most exciting thing about the self-funded program 
is that you're able to control your own destiny because you have the most flexibility in how you design the program. Just to ask a quick follow-up question, and and I'm I'm going off script here, Bob. So I I do quite, it quite all right. I, yeah. So <laughs> are you flashing you, signs of third base with the Moneyball theme? Yeah. Yeah. Can you give some insight into the types of programs and the types of actions you can take when you have access to that data? Just high level. You know what 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 can you do with it? Yeah. There's a lot of things. I mean, really, I think at times when you are fully insured. It is just add water and everything is there. It's all in the same ecosystem. It's it's really just, it's off the shelf. Um, I think a, a good example I use with newer consultants is for any golfers that we have on the podcast. And yes, you can be a, a really high handicap golfer. You can walk into the, the, the big box store and you can buy the set of clubs off the shelf that includes everything you need. It's got, you know, driver, a couple of irons. It's got the putter. It's got a bag. It's, you know, probably even got you know, tees and it's serviceable, but it's not really dialed in to what your game will be as opposed to, hey, I want to hit some different irons. I want to check out uh, a few different brands and I want to dial into my game more. That's a lot of what's going on in a fully insured versus self-insured dynamic. So in a self-insured dynamic, just looking at the care itself, how are you able to look at really laser focusing on areas? Pharmacy is a big one. Pharmacies are a really big area to be able to dial into, but even particular care conditions, diabetes, transplants. Believe it or not, medical implants are huge and implants are anything that is put into your body. So the markup, you have a knee operation, you have you know anything that's going and even stents in your heart, there is tremendous markup when you're in essence buying the golf club set off the shelf as opposed to designing it and saying, we're going to work on our orthopedics uh, specialty in particular and really be able to design a plan that has incentives we can negotiate. We can work with vendors. We certainly don't expect employers to be out there negotiating directly with healthcare systems, although you can in some cases. So there are so many areas I would say to laser focus and just naming a couple components of the plan that there's huge waste. We talk Moneyball, there's huge waste when you just say, I'll be fully insured, I'll be off the shelf, and I will get whatever putter comes in that bag. So when you're getting access to this to data in a self-funded plan, you're able to see where people are treating. You're able to see the types of conditions they're treating for. You're able to see how different demographics are using the plan and, right. and, and, and how they're engaging the plan. Is it is it fair to say that if you're self-funded, you can really start to take control of how individuals are going to seek care, how they're going to access care and steering them toward the places that get the best outcomes at the best price. Yeah, that's fair. I think the first part of that is you're getting data. You're not guessing. You're not assuming. You're actually getting data. And yeah, outcomes is huge. We always hear these buzzwords, you know, outcomes based and how do we figure this out? Well, to the pure, fully insured program, you're just part of a much larger pool, even if your claims experience dictates. But yeah, it's it's got really being able to take that data and design programs, access points. How do I get care? 
how do I, and a lot of patterns, a lot of the behaviors that we look to control with our employees is financial, co-pays, deductibles. But what's the point of having variable co-pays, deductibles, and incentives if it's that same mousetrap pulls you back into the same system, as opposed to having meaningful experiences that are outcomes-based in the plan that you design? And you've got the creativity to be as creative as you can and want based upon your population. Uh, and again, these are all outside of the actual financial terms. This is just talking about the mechanics, which in terms, that's the multiplier effect. The small dollars are things like premium tax savings. And everyone focuses on that, on a spreadsheet. Well, on a spreadsheet, it looks like the plan might not save that much in particular. And maybe it's an immature first year and I've got to build reserves. And we'll talk a lot more about that. But don't miss the big picture because the real savings on this is to, again, like we mentioned before, controlling your own destiny and building a program that has the multiplier effect on your bottom line for the health spend. The point of this entire podcast is to talk about ways of cutting through the fog of war, right? Ways of attempting to navigate what has historically been an opaque landscape right? and take the guesswork out. If you're looking at fully insured versus self-insured, the at the, at the end of the day, the bottom line is it's easier to eliminate the guesswork if you're in a self-insured model. Right. Right. So, so this all sounds good. Give me some downsides. What are some disadvantages to being self-insured? Yeah. So if you look at the upsides, like you just summarized there, yeah, we're able to not just identify opportunities, but actually solve for the opportunities too, which I think is huge. But listen, with everything, there's pros and cons of everything. A self-insured plan takes work. And to some people, it can be scary. And we'll talk today about how do you eliminate some of that risk? How do you eliminate some of the the uh, the unknowns? So some of the downsides, well, the biggest thing is there'll be a variable cost. There is some degree of volatility and there can be. And we look during COVID, plans that were self-insured during COVID, especially in 2020, we had, uh, we had cost modelers that we used in really in April, March, April, and May of 2020 and predicted that the elimination of claims, people just not going to a doctor, not getting the care they typically would get, non-urgent type care. And a lot of that never came back. So plans that were self-funded saw great opportunities in those years where their costs were way down. There's been some bounce back effect, even if those particular claims didn't come back, I'm only going to get my teeth cleaned so many times per year. I'm not going to catch up that many times uh, in the case of a COVID shutdown, but the volatility can be for a large claim. I didn't predict. Somebody got sick. These are people. We're not buying pencils. We're not buying office supplies. These are people. These are your employees. These are their, their spouses, their dependents. So that volatility at times can be scary. It can be, you know, fully insured, I might pay a little bit more, but I don't have to worry about the cost because I can budget to a dollar amount in this year. You really need to be sure that you're totally locked in with your broker and you're engaging your entire finance and HR team during the year because you're doing projections, you're doing accruals, you're underwriting with your, your broker and your, and your underwriters. And 
you need to have that appetite for those bad months. Now, I've been doing this uh, going on 25 years, and I can tell you in that time, probably eight of 10 years in a decade will be pretty much spot on. Makes sense. It's at budget. It's better than budget. You're going to have two of 10 years that just come out of left field and they stink. And you have to be in for that long haul. And we'll talk about some protections we build in to make the bad years not totally <laughs> jumping off a cliff and not draconian, but you have to have that appetite. If you think about the stock market for a second, yeah, there are some people who are in the stock market and day trading who want to quickly get in and get out. But for the most part, you talk about the stock market over decades and over time and how do you invest. Think of it the same way for your self-insured plan. Over time, it is a much better vehicle. If you're the right profile and the right company and the right management team and all of those places, but you need to be more cerebral in a self-insured plan and understand terms like stop loss and accruals and how are we running and, and what you know what large claims, high cost claimants, what are future indicators for other claims? So some of the downsides and the biggest one we just to summarize all these is you've got to have the appetite and the stomach for the variable costs. And over time, in most cases, not all, but in most cases, this is the right approach and working with your broker to help identify if the population makes sense. But it's not a one and done solution as to, hey, I could have did better last year in a fully insured plan. Maybe, maybe you could have. That's a, a longer term game. I, that's the first time I've ever heard someone phrase it that way, Bob. And I love it that that you have to think of this as you're saving for, you're saving over the course of the long haul. And that if you're the type of buyer who's going to get freaked out with one year that is, uh, that that is outside what you would project over the course of a decade that this may be an uncomfortable experience for them but you know one thing that's impossible to ignore is it's rarely the case that xyz insurance carriers located in some they have office space in some strip mall in peoria right like is most insurance most insurance <laughs> most insurance carriers have a level real estate right. they have a ton of employees and when you're fully insured, you know, you're paying a lot of salaries, you're paying a lot sure. of overhead administrative costs. If you're if you go self-insured, you're contributing less to the largesse of an insurance carrier and and giving yourself, putting yourself in the in the position to benefit from the good years instead of transferring that money uh for the for the protection of being in a fully insured policy. But one thing that I, I hear all the time when I'm out there talking to employers with you know 10 employees to 100 employees, maybe even up to 300 employees might be the north end of where I, I encounter this apprehension is um, I'm too small to self-insure. Right. I'm, I'm not big enough to self-insure, but self-insuring means a lot of different things these days. And even in the 10 years that I've been in the, the industry, it's changed a lot over the past, you know, 10, 10 years, but five, six years, it's even it's even changed quite a bit regarding uh, the types of strategies that we're bringing to the market to smaller employers. Can you give a sense of the different types of strategies that exist when we talk about self-funding that that may cut through this um, misunderstanding that they're that companies are too small to self-insure? Or this sure. perspective, it may not yeah. be a misunderstanding, but the perspective that they're too small to self-insure. Self you know, I don't 
think the perspective, I think it's a good way of putting it. I don't think the perspective is by happenstance. I think to your earlier comment about some of these very large insurance companies, they are controlling the message to a large extent. And I think, Scott, you and I both have, I'm sure, similar examples of this over time when an insurance company in a fully insured plan makes a business decision to actually have a rate that is below where we think the cost will be. And they're making a decision and saying, we're going to lose money on you this year to renew you in this fully insured plan. Alarm bells should be going off because that <laughs> just tells us that they're looking at it and saying, we want to keep them fully insured. That's where the profits are. So I think a lot of the perception is, and, and listen, I don't think, you know, we, we don't fault anybody, any business for making money. But I think a lot of that perception, a lot of the narrative is controlled by the 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 markets and the markets are making more profit in fully insured plans. So often at times the apprehension is, no, 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 you, you don't want to be self-insured. You could have a really bad year and you could. But there's not, we mentioned earlier, the bookends, fully insured, self-insured. There's a lot in the middle. And there's a lot of programs, if you want to start to dip your toe in the water, that really fall into the hybrid approach of self-funding. So I'm a big fan in particular, some of these hybrid type products, um, depending upon the state that you're in, it could be called level funding or graded funded or minimum premium. And we're not going to go into today as far as the chassis they sit on, because they do differ as far as regulations go. But just for today's conversations, there is it's a hybrid. For the win, you have a good claims year, you're going to benefit. You'll be rewarded by some of that win, not dollar for dollar because you have to have some risk reward. So if you're basically saying to an insurance company or a, or a provider or a TPA, I want to have a level funded program and tell you what insurance carrier, provider, TPA, whatever it's going to be, I'm keeping it in a big big sphere to keep it generic. I'll be in this hybrid program and we think our claims are going to be at a certain level. To the extent we beat certain metrics in that, we'll share in maybe half of the return or two thirds of the return, or the money won't even leave our bank account to some level. But in the bad years, if we have a large claim, we're protected there as well. So it's it's a good middle ground and it's a great way for companies, especially in maybe the you know, 50 employee space to 150 or so. That's a great sweet spot where it says, you know, I'm not ready to be. And in this industry, we call it pure self-insured or self-funded. The We love acronyms. Everyone knows that. ASO, Administrative Services Only. That is a good code word when people say, are you ASO? Well, that means you're self-insured. And- there's a lot in between true ASO or self-insured and fully insured. And these hybrid products do a great job. It's like training wheels. I'm going to give it a shot. It's not going to cost me maybe much or, or, or any more than fully insured. I know I'm not going to save as much as I could being self-insured, but I'm going to give it a shot. And I'm going to be in this program, get better data, start to see how it goes with the training wheels on. And then maybe after a couple of years, a great stepping stone where it says, you know what, I've been in this level funded plan for three years and I got a good grasp of how it's working and our data and our claims. And it's time to go self-insured 
And it's a great stepping stone way to be able to do that. So it gives you some of the upside, some of the upside that an ASO self-insured client would have, but with more predictability uh, and more protection than you'd see in a in a in a standard all the way on the the far side ASO right. type structure. Um, even, but there even with certain types of uh, savings accounts, or I'm sorry, reimbursement arrangements, those fall into a self-funded bucket as well though yeah. right yeah. i mean if we're if we're talking about a small employer 10 employees and they set up a, a health reimbursement arrangement they've stuck their toe in the self-funding you know they've 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 taken on some of the some of the the risk of claims and 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 have gained access to some data regarding those claims uh while ostensibly reducing fixed monthly premium costs so i'll gi- i'll give you an example um I, I used to be in a health plan that had a $3,000 deductible on paper, but it really had a $1,500 deductible because my employer set up a health reimbursement arrangement um, on the back end that would reimburse me for, for claims that exceeded $1,500. The net result to me, though, was that I was paying a monthly premium that was commensurate with a $300, I'm mm-hmm. sorry, a $3,000 deductible. Right. Uh, freed up, it reduced my fixed monthly premium costs, freed up some money for me to put into a health savings account, but I still had that same protection on the back end from my employer that once I got past $1,500, uh, the health reimbursement arrangement would pick up the, the the expenses tied to the plan at that point. Even with that little arrangement that's accessible to a company of any size, even if the major chassis is fully insured, you're going to get some pretty good data with that right bob yeah, I mean, yeah. And, and 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 you can do some stuff with with uh, the data that you're going to see in that type of arrangement even if it's a a very small section of being self-funded it's got it's a great point because i think all too often to this point even today in our conversation we talked about it we we're like it was binary it's you're either fully insured or you're, you're aso and even the products that might be hybrid that's still the underlying major medical plan chassis but and I'll, I'll give a quick story. So early in my career, so New York as a state where I've grown up in this business, uh, up till about, maybe it's 10 years ago now, maybe a little bit more now, would be able to have a self-funded plan at 50 employees. Now it's 100. And I remember back in the day, especially when a lot of these financial firms who understood risk, a lot of Wall Street clients I had over the years who understand sort of risk, said, yeah, I'll be self-funded at 51 employees. I'll do it all day long. And then when the laws changed to your exact point, Scott, like, well, I don't have that option right now, but I understand the risk. So why don't I have the underlying chassis that is a fully insured chassis, but I'll put up an HRA, a health reimbursement account. And just how Scott outlined it, we can have higher deductibles uh, on the underlying chassis because the insurance company, if you think about it, Let's let's think about this for a second. All health insurance. Really what we're doing, we know pretty well what claims are going to be over $5,000 per year. The average citizen spends about $800 per year in healthcare. That's it on average. So the insurance companies, all they're really doing is reinsuring these large claims. So all we're really doing is saying it's really predictable between dollar one and dollar five thousand. Really predictable. So if you want to pay from dollar two 
or up to dollar four thousand nine hundred ninety nine, we can move the needle pretty well. And the larger deductible, as Scott pointed out, all we're really doing is saying, great, it's kind of like a reinsurance plan, like a big stop loss plan. So I know we're going a little bit deep in that analogy, but if you think about it and bring it back just to the basics, and Scott laid it out pretty well, there's nothing wrong with having a self-funded plan with a fully insured chassis. And an HRA does just that to be able to get some data or to be able to have your employees start to understand how the plan mechanics work. Often the funding is invisible to the employee, the end user, but this is a great technique that we love to use to be able to say, you know what? It doesn't need to be one or the other. We're able to infuse, a, at least so think of it this way. If I can, right now I'm spending a dollar if I can lower that cost of the insurance company to 70 cents and worst case, break even, if I give employees 30 cents to spend and I give the insurance company 70 cents, it's that same dollar. But I'm thinking differently and saying, well, you know what? That 70 cents I'm going to the insurance company, we're only trending every year higher on the 70 cents, their profit, their everything else. And that 30 cents, what if I can make it 25 cents? or 20 cents. In essence, it is a self-funded program. And there's some compliance around that. But that's so it's not just, hey, we're too small, we can't do any of this, or we're just not ready. That's an awesome solution to be able to use. But the, the overarching theme, what I'm taking away from your insights, Bob, is just that you're, you're putting yourself in a position to have some upside. That's right. You're putting yourself in a position to not to reduce your fixed costs and take some some take on some variable costs that gives you the chance to your point not spend those extra 30 cents that's a guaranteed dollar or a guaranteed uh, a payment going out the door when you're in a sure. fully Sounds insured awesome. model and and give you the chance to hold on to that one thing that we're starting to see in the claims data when we work with really large uh self-funded cases and, and and not really large self any self-funded case where we have access to prescription drug data um we're starting to see prescription drug data uh cost data eclipse major medical spend mm -hmm. uh becoming the majority of what employers are spending money on uh can you talk a little bit about how employers are starting to play money ball with prescription drug payments uh, some of the methods they're adopting and and what's possible. I'll tell you, pharmacy, and I don't know, I sense a future podcast around just this topic. <laughs> there's just so much and, and there's just so much in the pharmacy world in this. Um, I remember early in my career. We, Bob, we talked about self-funding without talking specifically about captives consortiums, without talking about <laughs> That's right. uh, reference-based pricing. So there, yep. we're, we're going to be coming back to revisit this topic <laughs> in future episodes, but I, I digress. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'll tell you, I mean, pharmacy alone, it's, I remember early in my career, the pharmacy spend would be approximately 18% of the overall spent. It was pharmacy. Then all these, the biologics and the specialty meds, and all of a sudden we're working with programs and it's 20, 25, 30% of the spend. And now we're seeing ridiculous numbers that of the large claims, and, and here's an important sidebar. If you're in a self-funded program, even today, make sure your stop loss contract covers pharmacy. It is the biggest inflator out there. 
And it really, if you look at the pharmacy end of this, follow the money, like, like most things in the world. Our healthcare system incents providers to monetize specifically through pharmacy. And if you think about that, it's absolutely no coincidence that the large insurance carriers in this country either own PBMs or are owned by pharma. This is a business. This is a business. And if you look at it, they're going to say, yeah, this is a great cost center. This is a great business to be in. But as an employer, you need to understand where a lot of these costs are. Compounding medications, um, specialty medications. We, we have a, a fantastic internal practice uh, of pharmacy consulting. And I love just listening to, the, to that team and just hearing all the insights they provide because I learn something every single time they present to a client. And right now, so much goes on in the data. And the first thing our consulting teams do in the pharmacy side is they get the data. They get the dump of actual claims and dosages, everything else, and they look at it. And they do a top 10, and this just knocks my socks off. And of course, the names of these drugs, you can't pronounce any of them. But they'll actually say, hey, you see this drug right here, Bob? Like, yeah, I see it. It's blah, blah, blah cost. They say there's basically two active ingredients in them. And one is Tylenol, and one is just basically like a, a you know topical anesthetic of some sort. Their individual cost is $4 for one and seven for another. But when you put it together in this compound, the actual cost is $600 per month. And that happens a lot more than you think. So this is not about the case of taking away, because everyone always assumes you're taking life-saving drugs and access away from our members. No, this is often the case of entrepreneurial professionals, pharmacists who have figured out in how to make their business and their profit in these medications. And often at times we go back to the employee and say, you know what? There's a different medication you're going to take. It's actually better. It's going to be cheaper for you. It's all these things. And more often than not, the employee is so insulated from that cost, they don't even understand. Like, well, it cost me 20 bucks. Yeah, but it cost the plan $5,000 last year. So pharmacy, I, I look at it and this is ultimately finding the waste. We talk money ball, finding the waste and to an extent, putting the adults back in the room in many cases. You know, pharmacy is a, it is a huge, we know what healthcare in particular costs in this country as a percent of the economy. And pharmacy is quickly becoming more and more and more. And this is where you're hearing about things as to um, some sad situations, people that are splitting pills, taking different dosages, uh, getting medications elsewhere. And our job, and I'm passionate about this as a good consultant, is to really climb inside that data, find that waste. And we have those tools. We have those tools to be able to find the waste and replace it with either the same experience. It could just be a negotiation or it could be a better experience. But all too often, I've doing this for, for many decades, I have never found anybody who wants to eliminate a medication that is helping someone's quality of life and certainly not life-threatening. Bob, out in the out in the world, a lot of employers might come across the concept of rebates mm -hmm. uh, that are tied to prescription drugs. How how can 
employers benefit from prescription drug rebates? How can they, how can they get in the game? Yeah. Yeah. Well, the first thing is making sure that you're self-insured because in the rebate, (laughs) so this is something where, and this is just fascinating. So just think of it this way. And all the drug manufacturers do this. There are big financial incentives to prescribe their medication. Pharma is a big business. Doctors are being told, hey, prescribe this medication. So if you think about it, what what other industry out there, what other consumer good, what else out there says we're going to provide a rebate when you're using our medication? So first things first, when you are self-funded, you have the ability to receive rebates pharmacy rebates. All too often, because again, we one of the themes today is following the money. On the easy end, it is many employers say, so the, the administrator of this, whether it be the carrier, or the TPA would say, you know what, Scott, you're the CFO of the company. And tell you what, we're going to keep the rebates as the carrier of your self-funded plan. We're going to administer it for you. We're going to keep the rebates but I'm going to give you a $9 per employee per month credit towards your admin fee. And you'll look at it and say, holy crap, $9 times months times number of employees. That's pretty significant. It's it's a guaranteed cost. Maybe I'll just jump on that. Well, (laughs) I would say more often than not, probably always those rebates far exceed that that, um, credit. So we would counsel you to be able to get these rebates, get into data, being educated, being self-insured, and it's not out of the question. I'm not talking about tremendous companies. Maybe for the company between, let's say it's 750 employees or so, it is not out of the question to have a half a million dollars in rebates in a certain year. It's not out of the question. And depending on certain medications, it could even be higher. So this, you know, internally, and I believe this, we refer times, our pharmacy team refers to a time, the dirty world of pharmacy. And it's often just that. There are horror stories out there of the financial. I think we we all know, obviously, of, you know, of Pharma Bro and all that whole story years ago and the EpiPen and the additional costs. It happens every day, maybe not to that extent. And I'll tell you, legislatively, to this point, We have not been able to get a handle on it legislatively in this country. So as an employer, it's a great opportunity to really understand, become educated and find opportunities to eliminate the waste in the pharmacy area. You know, Bob, it's so funny. A a bunch of us at One Digital are involved with our relevant associations, lobbying associations that represent both our clients and, and what we do. Uh, down in Washington, D.C. and at state capitals across the country. And I'm not aware of a single politician who doesn't say I want to do something mm-hmm. about prescription drug pricing. But then when you dig into the open secrets profile yep. and you see where the contributions are coming from, Bingo. it's easy to become disillusioned. Uh, every presidential administration that enters office is going to say we're going to fix prescription drug pricing. Uh, I'm not holding my breath for that. Uh, just being the the cynic I am, uh, understanding the money that's involved in politics. Um, so employers really, if I'm hearing you correctly, employers really need to take initiative as plan sponsors and not wait for 
DC to fix this, yeah. not wait for your state capital to, to to pass some piddling statute that's going to do nothing. They really need to, uh, they really need to get involved and take an active role and work with a consultant who knows what they're doing on this front because the the the, the amounts of money at at stake for the average plan sponsors huge. It, it's massive, and at every level, and without you know going too far in the rabbit hole, at every level it stinks. A quick true story: a couple of years ago, there was a ill patient, uh, an employee of a company of an organization, and the medication that was being administered it was an injectable, and the J code, which is the administration of this very simplistic medication. It ended up being a cash cow for the not just the the, the uh, pharmacist part of the plan, but the physician got paid seven thousand dollars per administration. That literally was it was not some complicated infusion. And my point is, at every level, the healthcare system, unless you have your hands, or we inherited that group, and as you can <laughs> probably assume, we made some changes pretty quickly in that program. Um, but the plan we inherited had some very open areas to it that was exploited by the physicians at a reputable institution. So the system incents people to say, yeah, I can make money doing this and I'm going to prescribe it this way and use this particular code. And a lot of that is simply finding and getting the medication. So we ended up making a change once we got involved to how the person received this medication. And we ended up saving the plan um, almost a quarter million dollars for the frequency that this infusion was continuing wow. to be used. So, so Bob, I want to thank you again for taking the time. And this will not be your last visit to the Moneyball Benefits podcast. Um, I, I really appreciate you sharing your insights. Um, and if the, if you're listening to this podcast right now and you take one thing away, uh, Bob is one of our finest consultants without question that we have at One Digital. If you can't pick up the passion in his voice for the work that he does, this is something he takes incredibly seriously, as do all of our consultants that work at One Digital. But what's most important for you to take away is if you are not having these types of conversations, if you're not looking at your funding mechanism and constantly recalibrating and constantly revisiting and thinking about the data that you have and working with people to understand how to how to use that data. Um, One Digital is more than happy to have a conversation with you and uh, and and whether it's Bob or one of our other consultants, they all share this passion. Um, it's endlessly fascinating. It's also endlessly infuriating at times, um, but we can actually make some pretty significant changes within plans. So. Bob, thank you again for taking the time today. And Scott, uh, my pleasure. Always we'll, fun. We'll see everyone on the next podcast. Thanks, guys. Take care.